0: the backstretch here on our race to cover the whole Bible in two years, I put, out our, I put out page four of the reading guide. It's on the little stand there in the vestibule. And it's not even a whole page. We're we'll, In two months, we'll be done with the whole Bible having I mean, gone through it from, from Genesis to Revelation. We're, uh, we're going to finish up Romans today and also do a, a good part of 1 Corinthians, Lord willing. It's a bit of a challenge to do some, some of this material. Has so much, it's very hard for me to restrain myself to get through it. Last week, we did the first half of the book of Romans. Um, and in the introduction to that, I pointed out that Romans explains that the Gospel is different from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world says what must you do if you want to be right with God? Obey the law. Yeah, obey the law. You, you if you want to be right with God and this is and when I say every other religion this works even for religions that don't believe in the true God. I mean every every religion says the way to get right with God is to do what he says. And the gospel the gospel says that does not work so the book of Romans goes through this very much of a backwards looking uh, approach where step in, in, in every other religion step one do the do what God says step two God accepts you if it's a gospel God accepts you on the basis of what faith then, God makes you what He declared you when He accepted you. Just exactly backwards. And um, and where we're going to begin this morning in chapter 8, we're looking at the second half of that. uh, For the first few chapters, Paul explained how everyone is sinned. Everyone needs the grace of God. And no one has been able to do it in in the standard method no one has been able to obey what god says and and understand that's true when when what god said was the law of moses that's true when what god said is the law of christ no one has ever obeyed any law no one has ever become just before god by obeying any kind of rules If it wasn't for salvation by faith, there would be no salvation. But the wonderful thing is that God does not just save us and leave us in the mess we were in. He saves us and then transforms us into the image of Jesus, who of course is the, is the only One who's ever actually kept the law. <laughs> so now in this second part, and just, just chapter 8 is the only chapter that's going to deal with this, um, Paul deals with the issue of how God makes us into righteous people. Um, see, we look last time we, we looked at how everyone's unrighteous, chapter one, and you know, on the next couple chapters. Then how God imputes righteousness, justification by faith, and now how He imparts righteousness to us, how He makes us righteous. He makes us sanctified. What does sanctified mean? Set apart. Set apart. Holy. He makes us into holy people. He declared us to be righteous on the basis of our faith, but now He makes us to be righteous by setting us apart and actually making our lives different. And this chapter talks about that. So, let me move forward here. Alright. We who are in the Spirit gain the victory. At the end of chapter 7, the last half, Paul dealt with this... Um, terrible conflict that exists with anyone that tries to keep law and is at all honest with himself. And Paul was both. Paul, before he became a Christian, was certainly trying to keep the law, and he was also honest enough with himself to realize he wasn't doing it. And so he wanted to do it, but his flesh continually failed him. And he, and he said it at the, in verse 24 of chapter 7 Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? We have these bodies that are, are they always let us down. <laughs> who will set us free? So he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8 Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 3, "...for what the law could not do, weak as it was..." Why? Why was the law weak? Because of the flesh. flesh, Yes. Weak as it was to the flesh. God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. This is how God gives us life and sets us apart as holy through His Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Um, He says in verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. And then in verse 11, he says, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... Now, I wanted to stop there. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God did, God did yeah. You have to read this carefully because if you're, not, if you're careless, you think He's saying the Holy Spirit raised Jesus. That's not what He's saying. He's saying the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. So God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead you can't have, you can't show any more power than that to raise a dead person from, from up to life if, if that spirit dwells in me if that spirit dwells in you he says he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, I don't believe he's talking about the resurrection after a while. I think he's talking about right now. This is is the, the, the question Paul asked. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And the answer is, God will, through His Holy Spirit, who dwells in us. He will give life to our mortal bodies. This is exactly what we've needed. And it's exactly what all the other religions say you have to have before you can come to God, which makes it impossible. So God gives us salvation by His free free grace on the basis of our faith. Then, He puts His Spirit in us and gives life to us, making us what He declared us to be. Wow. Well... How much room does that leave us to, for us to brag about how good we are? <laughs> and we notice that was a big point in these earlier chapters. Where is the room for boasting? God has done it the only way that, that could remove the boasting. Now this is not this is not a one-sided thing. if we, If we stopped at verse 11, we would say, "Wow, this is great." I, I just kind of lay back and just gradually get more and more sanctified. (laughs) We have to cooperate in this matter. We are partners with God in this matter. So he says in verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are put into death the ease of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God These are sons of God. So clearly, it's our choice. Do we want to work with God in this matter or not? But when we've done everything we can do, it's still God who's doing the work in us. In verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. The issue with, with law keeping is it is a spirit of slavery. Anyone who tries to be justified by law is is doomed to a life of frustration. It's slavery. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. What does Abba mean? It means Father. Uh, It's a very intimate word though. It's it's kind of like our English word, Daddy. We have this very close relationship with God and the Spirit is is the one who, who is showing us that we have that. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are... Children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, down to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. This goes back to Genesis chapter 3. That's when the creation started groaning. And it's still groaning today. it's just obvious to anyone that thinks about it that this world is not like what it, it ought to be. We don't feel like it, it, it is right. We don't feel like it ought to be like this. We're groaning. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. We've even got the down payment of what God's ultimately going to give us when, when He turns His creation around. But even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body. So this is another example of many in the New Testament where we already have the gift of God, but we don't yet have it. Already, but not yet. That, that we, we have been adopted into God's family, but we're still groaning like we're not there. And, and so we're we're walking by faith at this point. Come right on in. We're in Romans chapter 8. Alright, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So here's another thing the Holy Spirit who is dwelling in us, the Holy Spirit is doing for us in that even our prayers themselves are not what they ought to be. We don't even know how to pray as we should. And so He's interceding for us the groaning is too deep for words. And and then verse 28 is a very famous verse. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It's a simple verse to, to read, simple verse even to memorize, but it's a very hard verse to live out. Because what this is saying is that everything that happens in our lives, God is using for good for us who are His children. Um, even things that seem to be very bad, the things that we do not like, God is yet using them for our good. And, and, he's, and Paul is asking us to take this on faith that that's the way God is working with us. Verse 31, for What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will then also with Him freely give us all things? And then in verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in our outline, we then go to the next next section which goes for three chapters. God's righteousness vindicated. The problem of Israel's rejection. I'm not going to spend as much time on this section. It it was a problem that bothered the Jews at that time probably more than it would bother us today, although it certainly has some very valuable teaching in it, but i got to get through a lot more chapters today. Um, So first of all, we have Paul's sorrow over the unbelieving uh, Jews. Um, He says, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. So much sorrow that what does he say he, he could do? He, he, he said, "I could give myself in place of them. I, I wish that I could be a curse from Christ for their sake." You can't have any more love than that. Moses. He, yeah, Moses had the same attitude for the children of, of Israel that he was leading. Yeah, ter, tremendous love he has. And then in verse six, he says, "But it is not as though the word of God has failed." You see, this was the issue. The Jews were saying, "Well, we're supposed to be the people of God. You know, God's word has failed if what you're saying is true." It's it's not. He says, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. How many children did, did Abraham have? He had more than one. Name me another one he had. In addition to Isaac. Name me another Ishmael. Ishmael, yeah. Ishmael was the firstborn, in fact. And then he had Isaac. And then a- after his wife died, he had several more. Um, but the descendants are only going to through, be through Isaac. So God did, God did not promise that the special people would be every descendant of Abraham. And so, um, in this chapter, Paul goes into the, some more details that I'm going to skip over about how God God has the right to pick. And, and it's on the basis of of His sovereign choice as to who's going to be these descendants. But in verse 30, He says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue the righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Then, chapter 10 is still on the same subject of Israel. Um, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here they are trying to keep the law and they didn't understand that the way to keep the law is by faith in Christ. I'm going to jump down to verse 11. For the Scripture says, "...whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him." For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes into a series of arguments about this, this matter of do they know to call? Were, were, were preachers and all of that? Um, I'm going to jump to the third chapter on the same subject about Israel. And in this chapter, he says, God has not rejected Israel. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. If God had rejected Israel, then where would Paul be? But he didn't. Paul, Paul is, has been saved. And then down in verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? He shows they stumbled over the stumbling block, which of course was Christ. Did, did they stumble? Was it God's purpose to get them out of the way? Did He want them to stumble and that's it? May it never be God has a plan here. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. God's God's using their own failure as an opportunity to take the Gospel to the Gentiles. You remember as we did the book of Acts, time and time again, Paul would would go to some new city in Gentile territory, but where would he go first? Synagogue. Synagogue. He'd preach for a week, two weeks, sometimes months, until the Jews did what? They threw him out. And then Paul would dust the dirt off of his shoes and would say, Since you ju- judge yourselves unworthy, we're going to who? Gentiles. Gentiles, yeah. So their stumbling made, made the opportunity for the Gentiles. So in verse 12, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, be, their fulfillment be? If their stumbling Causes glory of God, what will happen when they get up? Their fulfillment. Verse 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? All right, that's as far as I'm going to go on those chapters. Um, Chapter 12 begins the practical side of the book. We, We mentioned last week that. The book is divided into two pieces. They're not equal. Two-thirds and one-third. But the first two-thirds were doctrinal. And then the last third is practical. And it's based on the doctrine because what's the very first word of chapter 12? Therefore. Therefore, Yeah. Based on everything I've said so far, Paul says, here's how you should live. These are the practical results. So... um, Alright, so this chapter is on acceptable service to God. I'm going to read these first two verses, and then I'm going to put another chart up on the board. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now on the word spiritual, you have a marginal note if you've got the New American Standard, that says reasonable. The New King James uses the word reasonable, and I think that's a better word here. The Greek word is actually the Greek word that we get the word logical from. Um, it's also the word that logos in, in Greek is means word. In, Genesis, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. But this is logical service, reasonable service of worship. And there's a reason why I'm making this point you'll see in a moment. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may... Prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, on that word prove, we again have a marginal note that says, or approve. And I'm going to go with approve as well, and you'll see why here with this next chart. Paul is very deliberately making a contrast with what he said back in Romans 1. Romans 1 is the chapter about the sins of the Gentiles just how bad they were. And so, in chapter 1, verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurities so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Now Paul says in in Romans 12, presents present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And then in in chapter 1, verse 25, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator in chapter twelve, verse one, which is your spiritual service of worship, in chapter one, their bodies were dishonored in chapter twelve, their bodies are are offered to God as a sacrifice. in chapter one, they serve the creature in chapter twelve, we serve God. and now we come to this word approve just as in verse twenty eight of chapter one, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge, and literally the word is approve. God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved, literally a disapproved mind. Now look what he says in in 12:2. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, literally uproot, what the will of God is. Chapter 12 is intended to be the contrast of chapter 1. It is the answer to the problem. Paul has spent 11 chapters dealing with the problem, and now he shows you, Christians, are showing in your lives that this works. <laughs> that this Gospel really works. Um, the rest of this chart are, are a series of opposites. On the left from chapter 1, on the right from, from chapter 12. In chapter 1, you have wrath. In chapter 12, we have mercy. In chapter 1, we have refusing to glorify or thank God. Now we have sacrifice to God. Those Gentiles were dishonoring the body, now we're offering the body. They're, they were offering ignorant, idolatrous service of worship. Now we have reasonable service of worship. That's why he's emphasizing instead of the word spiritual, it's reasonable. Um, they had depraved minds. We now have renewed minds. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. Now we are approving the will of God. This is the answer. Alright, so let me just pick a few more verses out of this chapter. Uh, verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each, a measure of faith. Well, I, I alluded to this earlier. Where's the room for pride? That's the issue. If we were saved by grace through faith, and if we're now being made righteous because of His Holy Spirit dwelling in us, then where's the, where's the room for faith? And if I have some ability that you don't have, where did I get that from? Yes. It was a gift from God. He says in verse 4, just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to proportion of his faith, and so on. Where do we get these gifts in verse six? According to what? Grace. Grace, yes. We're saved by grace. And now we have gifts by grace. So instead of having a competition, let's see who's got the better gift, Paul says, understand that in a body like this, it's never God's intention that everyone have the same gift. That would be completely useless. We need a little bit of this, we need a little bit of that, a little bit of that. Paul talks about this more in 1 Corinthians, but we're not going to get that far this morning. Um, well, that's all I've got for that chapter. Still chapter 13, be subject to the government. Every person is to be subject in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except what? From God, yes. Even the very worst government is still from God. I mean, it'd be, we don't like, particularly like bad governments. We like to have better governments. But I'll tell you, even the very worst government is better than no government at all. And if, if you doubt that, just look over in the Middle East where they're trying to overthrow their government. And a lot of those people, I think, would be happy to go back to the government they had rather than live with the anarchy they now have. Um, in verse 8, Oh no... Oh, nothing to anyone except what to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then finally, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Chapter 14 comes back to the Jew-Gentile thing, but Paul does it in such a way as to lay down principles that apply even in churches that don't have that problem. Um, the Jews and Gentiles had major problems because the Jews, of course, are trying to still follow the law of Moses, which was fine and good. Paul never objected to Jews keeping the law of Moses. He even showed when he went to, to Jerusalem, he was going to, to participate in the Nazarite vow along with, with those other Jewish Christians. Um, but that creates a stress when you got the Jews think they need to be observing these certain food laws, for example and the Gentiles don't. Or you, in 1 Corinthians, we find that we have issues about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And different Christians are going to draw the line at, at different points. Kind of, there's some gray areas in there and you'll find different Christians drawing the line at different places. And the emphasis Paul places in this chapter is on love. Instead of on, I have my rights, it's on, how can I help my brother? So, in verse 1 now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. He's not to look down on him saying, you know, well, I'm really a better Christian than he is. I mean... Who was the guy in Jesus' parable that was doing that? The the Pharisee. Yeah, the Pharisee in the temple. Yeah, and that's the problem we can have in the church, too. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Um, and then verse 5, one person regards one day above another and another regards every day alike. Each person must be what? Fully convinced, in this matter. Fully convinced in his own mind because we stand before God in this matter. He observes the day, observes it what? For the Lord. For the Lord. And that's a key point here. And he who, he who eats does it for the Lord and he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, who's he doing it for? for the Lord. Also for the Lord. <laughs> yeah. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. So then in verse 13, in contrast to judging a brother, he says, therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Paul's not saying everybody has to do what everyone else wants them to do. He's not saying that. But he is saying you must be careful when you know that you have freedom that someone else doesn't think he has you must be careful. You not do not lead your brother to violate his conscience. And he finally closes down in verse twenty-three. But he who doubts is condemned to eat because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now this word faith is not the same as you know. We, we all have, must follow the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This faith is in his heart. He simply does not believe that what he's doing is right. He may be be completely mistaken, but as long as he thinks that, he must follow what his conscience says. And, and if he doesn't, it's a sin. You could do the most innocent thing in the world, but if in your mind it's a sin, it is a sin because you're showing what you would do toward God in violating his, what you think to be His Word. So in chapter fifteen he continues with this same idea of pleasing others instead of ourselves. He says, Now we are strong who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. And in verse three, who's the example he gives us for us to follow? Christ. Christ. Yeah, he did not he certainly did not please himself. If he could have done that, he wouldn't have come to this earth. And now, smack in the middle of chapter 15 begins in our next section. and We're almost done with the book of Romans. This is what we call the conclusion starting in verse 14. Um, I'm going to jump down to verse 24 though. Paul says, Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. So, I, When I introduced this book last week, I pointed out that this was kind of a letter asking for support. Paul is planning a, a missionary trip to Spain. He wants to take the Gospel War. It's never been taken before. And he's going to go through Rome and spend some time with them. And they're then going to help him on because you know he doesn't have the money to, to do this all by himself. They're going to help him. And so this letter is a letter of introduction to them and a letter encouraging to do that when he gets there. Of course, by the time he got there, it was in somewhat different circumstances. We don't know whether he ever did get to Spain or not. Um, and then finally, the last chapter is a chapter is a greetings, con- commendation, and greetings. Um, verse one: I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church is at, which is at sencrea She is probably the one who was carrying the letter with her to them. They didn't have a post office in those days. Where is Synchria? Yeah, just outside of Corinth. Paul was in Corinth for the wintertime writing this letter. And Synchria, there was a church there. I'm sure Paul had started it like, like all the others. Or if, if not specifically him, someone he converted. Um, and now this lady that, that he, sees, he knows to be a very good Christian, she's on her way to Rome. For some reason, he doesn't say why. And um, he's commending her to them. Um, Now, in verse 17, then he says, "Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Conjure the teaching which you learn and turn away from them." And then I'm going to jump down to the last verse to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Be the glory forever. Amen. And so ends a very. Quick trip through a very deep book. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Alright, turn the page. First Corinthians. I'm gonna start with a map here. Paul started the church of Corinth on his second journey. This is this is a map of the third journey. On the second journey he started the church at Corinth in, in Acts chapter eighteen is where that's um as you, yeah, I, yeah, it's chapter eighteen is where that's told about. But in, um, in chapter 19, when Paul was at Ephesus, that's when he wrote the letter to, to the church what we call 1 Corinthians. He was in Ephesus and he got word. I mean, it's not very far between the two. and There was a lot of commerce between them. And, and, and some people had come from the church at Corinth to Paul. I believe they came to deliver a, a letter to him asking some questions. Because he alludes to that as he goes on in the book. But they also told him some things by word of mouth that weren't in the letter and he was really, really not happy about this. Well, what did he learn from these people? The are yeah, there, there was just a lot of division in the church. And so he writes this letter to them. A letter we call First Corinthians. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this outline, but I do want to show you. This is the portion we're supposed to cover in the next... Six minutes. (laughs) Uh, Introduction, and then most of the chapters are on division in the church, but finally a couple of chapters on moral and ethical disorders. So chapter 1 is about these divisions in the church. Verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And explains in verse 12. Now, I mean this that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. And Paul is quite distraught over this willingness of these people to divide up over the teachers they think are, are, are the ones they like the best. And as far as Paul himself is concerned, verse 17, he says, I, Verse 16, I'm thankful I didn't baptize anyone, or verse 15, any of you. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. Now this doesn't mean the people weren't baptized, but there were others who did the baptizing. He says, He didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And apparently, this cleverness of speech was one of the reasons why the people were dividing up. Some of them liked a preacher that had a better flair for words than what Paul appeared to have. They liked... Someone that had more uh, that seemed like to them more of the a wise person in the Greek sense of of, the, of wisdom, and so Paul explains the problem with that. He says in verse eighteen, "For the cross of the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God." Um, in verse twenty, he says, "Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age?" Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And he's going to continue dealing with this wisdom in the next chapter. God's wisdom is revealed by the Spirit. Um, he says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. They were counting that as a, as a mark against Paul, that he didn't come with the flowery language and the, and the great words of wisdom. You know, just, just, he was just preaching a simple message. He says he explains why he did it on purpose. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But it's not like there isn't wisdom from God. In verse six, he says, "Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery." Now, what does mystery mean in the Bible? Yeah, and not reveal. It's something that you cannot know unless what? Unless God reveals it to you. That's right. That's not the kind of wisdom that the Greek wise men liked to to think about because the where they got their wisdom was just by their thinking. you'll never get God's wisdom that way. It has to be revealed. It's a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. And he says in verse 10, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So God's wisdom is revealed by the Spirit. It doesn't come through smart people sitting around and thinking. Now, chapter 3 talks about the church being the temple of God. It's... um, he says in verse 4, oh, when you know, one of you is saying, I am Paul and another, I am Apollos. In verse 5, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And he so talks about the work of, that he and Apollos did. But he, but he, he explains what, he's, what it is in verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. What was he building? The church. The church, that's right. But he pictures it like it's a building. He stays with that picture a little bit later in the chapter in verse 16. Do you not know that you are a what? A temple of God. The temple was built with a foundation and built on top. And the the church is a temple of God what is dwelling in that temple? The Spirit of God is dwelling in that temple. That's an awesome thought. So, if any man destroys the temple of God, what's God going to do? Destroy him. We have to understand that. This looks like you know this looks like a little humble group here, but it's a temple of the Holy Spirit, and anyone who would destroy this temple, God's not going to be happy with, at all. And so in chapter 4, Paul talks about the work of a preacher. He says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The steward was an office in a rich person's house. His job was to kind of dish out the food and other things that that all the other servants needed. And Paul says, I'm a servant. I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. His, His job is to hand out the mysteries to the other servants. That's kind of an interesting picture. In verse 7, then he talks to the Corinthians in their pride. He says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you do not receive? This is what we were talking about back in the book of Romans. It's very easy for people to get lifted up with pride. Wow, you know, aren't we great? Paul says, What do you have that you didn't get were not handed as a gift. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And now he gets a little bit sarcastic with them. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. Because Paul certainly wasn't living like a king, was he? (laughs) He says, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. Boy, I'm glad that I wasn't in Corinth receiving this letter. I mean, wouldn't you be embarrassed? (laughs) Trying to lift yourself up. You know, we're so great. And then Paul says, yeah, I wish you were great because I'd like to have a little bit of a great life myself. But Paul's telling telling this because he's really grieved. Um, Now... Chapter four then ends the the part of the of the book that's specifically about them saying I'm a Paul I'm a Paulus, and now starts dealing with some very so we could say miscellaneous problems in the church, but but serious. What was the problem in chapter five? Yeah, a man had his father's wife, and they weren't doing him about it. What does Paul say they must do about it? Turn them over to Yeah. They, in, in um, verse 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So, then, having dealt with that, in chapter 6, he says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? What's the problem if one Christian takes another Christian to law? Well, what's, what's the problem with that? So ultimately, they're supposed to be judges. Well, yes, he does mention that. I'll get to that in a moment. And the law is, is Gentiles, yeah. it's not gods. Right, they're going out before unbelievers to be judged. Well, there's, there's several problems here. First of all, they're telling the whole world, hey, we're just like you, we can't get along any, either. Aren't they saying that? Second, they're saying... And when we can't get along, we don't have anybody in our group that's smart enough to, to, to resolve it. We've got to go out to you Gentiles before your, your court to get the matter resolved. And so Paul says, don't you know that we Christians, we're going to judge the world and we're also going to judge angels? Wow. If we're going to do that, we ought to be able to judge a few things here, huh? You know, isn't there somebody in the church wise enough to deal with this, Paul says? But then, in verse 7, he suggests that instead of going to court, there's a better alternative. And what is that? So. Yeah, just accept the wrong. Why not rather be defrauded? That's a heavy one. <laughs> wow. Now, <clears throat> one last topic. <clears throat> and he changes subjects in verse 12. Certainly, in verse 12, he starts talking about fornication, sexual immorality. And he's giving some arguments that probably were being made in the church at Corinth in favor of, of that sin. I mean, that's incredible to think about, but apparently there were Christians that were saying, hey, it's okay to, you know, for Christians to kind of sleep around. Um, and then Paul says, no, it certainly is not. Um, in verse 15 he says, "...do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ?" Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And verse 18, flee immorality. He's talking about fornication. You flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is what? Here we've got another temple. We had the church with the temple. Now individual Christians, their bodies are the a temple of the Holy Spirit. But well, how can you take a temple and drag it through the mud like that with this kind of sexual behavior? It's, it's just terrible. Alright, any last questions or comments? Alright, we'll finish up First Corinthians next week and, and more. <laughs> Appreciate everyone's help this morning.